This morning, or this week, I was just really reminded, as we all were, of the ministry of Billy Graham. Uh, I don't know how many of you, how many of your lives were impacted by uh, his ministry, but uh, it was through his ministry that I came to Christ. And so, praise God for a man who was just so faithful for his entire life and served the Lord in such a, a powerful, powerful way. So, we are so grateful for his legacy. I'd like for you to stand for the reading of God's Word. How many of you read the Scriptures before you came this morning? It's going to be an interesting morning, isn't it? Let me read the Scriptures for us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is, is, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Lord, we thank you for your word. And now I pray that you would help me to clarify and explain to the best of my ability and with your help these scriptures. I pray, Lord God, that we could leave here encouraged in our faith and with a greater desire to glorify Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. In case you all don't know this, I am a really gracious and kind senior pastor. Um, You see, I'm the one who sets the preaching schedule for the church. I hold all the chips, and so when it came to deciding who should preach the two toughest passages in First Peter, the first from three weeks ago, wives be subject to your husbands, and then the passage that we just read this morning. I could have assigned those to Will. <laughs> I have that much authority. And it would be a good test, right? I mean, let's see what the young guy can do with this. <clears throat> but I'm a nice guy, and that would not have been very nice. Plus, as a preacher, you need to understand that when you're dealing with a a difficult text, you have nightmares as to how it could possibly turn out. I'm I'm sure it was the Olympics that conjured up this image in my mind this week. Too hard. Wolf Findheisen of East Germany, 24 years old. And he's been a good one for the East Germans. He's sitting in a good position there. Good forward move. Oh, no. He's in trouble, too. Oh, no. Face first onto this icy hill at Kulm, Ulf of East Germany. That's what I was picturing with this passage. I didn't want to do that to Will. It might still happen to me. And so those of you who are trained in CPR and know how to use that shock box thing out in the hall. By the way, just so you know, passages like this are one of the reasons why some pastors do not preach expository sermons through books of the Bible. Um, it's much safer to preach topical texts, topical, topical sermons, because then you can skip this kind of stuff. 
But when you're preaching through a book of the Bible, if I had skipped these verses, you would have all said, uh, Gary, what about verses 19, 20, 21? I will say I find it somewhat humorous that in his second epistle, Peter actually makes the comment about the fact that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. Seriously, Peter? And yours are easy to understand. Now, the great thing about the passage that we're going to look at this morning is that while there are some challenging verses right there in the middle that I will do my best with God's help to to explain, they are bookended by some incredible verses about Christ, about who He is and what He did and His work that He accomplished for us on the cross and, and where He sits now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so verse 18 Just so you know, verse 18 is probably one of the richest, clearest, strongest statements about the work of Christ that you have in the entire New Testament. In fact, it's a verse that you probably should memorize. Um, And then verse 22 is Christ's place of supreme honor and authority, and we'll get to that in just a few minutes. So on the front end, first of all, Peter's going to tell us about point number one. He's going to tell us about the suffering of Christ. One of the primary reasons why Peter wrote this epistle was to prepare and strengthen believers to suffer because of their faith. In fact, in 1 Peter, the word word suffer, suffered, suffers, suffering, sufferings occur 18 times. By far, there's no other book in the New Testament that comes even close to that. I think Hebrews has the words or the forms of the word suffer eight times, 2 Corinthians seven times. 1 Peter, 18 times in a very short epistle. And that tells you something about what Peter was wanting to accomplish. If Job is the Old Testament book on suffering, then 1 Peter is the New Testament counterpart to Job. Peter's wanting to arm believers, and he actually is going to use that phrase next week. He wants to arm believers with a perspective that will sustain them in the midst of the absolute worst that could happen to them. Now, what is the worst that could happen to you? Have you ever given that some thought? What is the absolute worst that could happen to you? And would you be ready for it if it came? Maybe the worst has already come your way. Were you prepared? Did you have a perspective? Did you have a paradigm to work with in handling the worst? That's what Peter wants to do for his readers. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do for all believers in all generations. Basically, what Peter is saying here is, Jesus suffered for you, so to suffer as a believer is to follow in the footsteps of the suffering Christ. You have a suffering Savior. You have, you have one who has suffered to a degree beyond which no one can even come close. And so when you are called to suffer in some fashion you are simply following in the footsteps of Jesus. And so he writes in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Wonderful verse. You know, I read verses like that. I marvel at how the writers of Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit oftentimes could pack so much into such a small space. It's kind of like 
Mary Poppins with her satchel, and she just keeps bringing stuff out of that satchel to the amazement of the kids. Sometimes that's the way Scripture is. You read a verse, and you say, how in the world, Paul, Peter, James, John, whoever, David, how did you pack so much? Because it takes me 45 minutes to do a sermon, and you pack so much into one verse. And that's the power of God's Word. It's one of the evidences that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter has captured what are probably the most important truths about what Christ accomplished on the cross in this one verse. He tells us several things about the suffering of Christ. First of all, that it was sufficient. It was sufficient. For Christ also suffered once for sins. What's the key word there? What's the key word? Once. Once. He suffered for sins not twice, not three times, not ten, not a hundred, not a thousand times. He suffered once for sins. Once was enough. Once was all it took. The Greek word hapax means it doesn't need to be repeated ever again of perpetual validity. I would imagine if you're like me, there are some things in your life that you wish you didn't need to, that you wish didn't need to be repeated over and over and over and over again. You know, just around the house, you know, how many times do you have to vacuum? How many times do you have to dust, do the laundry, load the dishwasher, empty the dishwasher, change dirty diapers for young parents, tell your kids to get ready for bed, and tell them again and again? Or how about for a lot of us here, making another trip to the DMV to get those tags renewed? It has to be repeated. You wish they would just give you a tag of perpetual validity. I'm sure we could make a long list of things we wish we didn't have to repeat. Christ suffered once for sins. In sharp contrast to the sacrificial system under the old covenant for atoning for the sins of the people that had to be repeated over and over again and again and again. I want to put a picture up on the screen of the Old Testament tabernacle that is described for us in the book of Leviticus. Um, this, is, this, this was essentially where God would meet with the people. And the people would bring their animals, their, their bulls and goats and sheep. And, and if, you, if you couldn't afford those, you'd bring turtle doves or pigeons. And they would bring them in and they would be slaughtered and the blood would be poured out. And then the, the parts, different parts of the animal would be burned on the altar. And then the blood would be sprinkled, sprinkled to atone for the sins of the people. And then once a year, the priest would go into the holy place and then behind a curtain. Picture, if you will, picture this being the tabernacle and you came in through the back doors and you brought with you your animals of sacrifice and back there in the narthex, the the elders took them from you and they slaughtered the animals and they took the blood and they sprinkled it. They sprinkled some on you. And then once a year they would come in, the priest would come into the holy place, and then right here there's this huge curtain, massive curtain, thick. And once a year the high priest would go behind the curtain with the blood of the lamb to atone for the sins of the people. And that would get repeated over and over again and again and again. The priest had to keep slaughtering bulls, goats, sheep, pigeons, turtle doves. Friends, we're talking millions of animals killed, rivers of blood 
being spilled over the centuries. I mean, during their annual Passover celebration, Jews had to bring their Passover lamb. In Jerusalem, a Passover was chaos. My wife and I were watching a, a sort of a docu-film on a guy who travels around the world, and not, not uh, Bourdain, but another guy who travels around the world, pretty humorous guy, and tests all the foods. And he happened to be in Bangkok, Thailand, and my wife commented, I could never go to Bangkok, Thailand because of the crowds of people. She would have hated Jerusalem at Passover. I mean, they estimate that the population in Jerusalem was between 80 and 100,000 people regular time. During Passover, two to three million people would converge upon the city. And scholars estimate that as many as a quarter million sheep would be sacrificed during Passover. You see, the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant wasn't adequate. It wasn't enough. It wasn't comprehensive enough. Each sacrifice was limited in nature and was effectual only for the person or family who brought it. The brook's sheep being sacrificed would not do for the Halpin's sheep or the Cleason's sheep or Dan Hebert's sheep. They would have to bring their own. You had to bring your own. It was to atone for my sins, my family's sins. Now, the book of Hebrews, chapters 9 and 10 especially, those of you who are reading through using the Bible reading plan, you were in Hebrews this past week. In 9 and 10, it explains how the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant was not adequate, nor was it ever intended to be adequate. It was intended to look forward to the day when one ultimate final sacrifice would be presented. Not by a priest, but by God himself. God would bring his lamb. And it would be a once-for-all sacrifice. Let me read for you some of the verses from Hebrews 9 and 10. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, and here's the amazing thing, Christ came both as a high priest and bringing his own blood. Okay? When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not the one that you saw up on the screen, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places of heaven. That's what Hebrews is talking about. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he, Christ, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
And then in chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Praise God. Praise God. So the first thing about Christ's suffering, it was completely sufficient. Secondly, it was substitutionary. Substitutionary. It took the place. His sacrifice, his suffering took the place of the many who should have suffered for their sins. Verse 18, the righteous for the unrighteous. Substitutionary, taking someone's place. Kelly Henderlong does substitute teaching for, the, for Parkway schools, and she takes someone's place. She gets a phone call, I need, we need a sub. Can you come in and take over for so-and-so teacher? Uh, our, uh, our men's basketball team, you know, you, you send in a sub. Taylor Keene, go in for Curry. Sherm, go in for Shaq. You know, they're subs. You might as well dream a little bit, you know. But friends, in the case of Christ, it's one taking the place not of one, but one taking the place of many. One taking the place of multitudes. For God so loved the world, that's the many, that he gave his only son. That's the one. Romans 5, God shows his love for us. We are the many. In that while we were still sinners, Christ the one died for us. 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ the one died for our sins, the many. So that's what was happening when Jesus suffered. He was our substitute. He took our place. He took your place. And then also, Peter tells us it was very specific in its purpose. Verse 18 that he might bring us to God. Say, well, what was the end game in all of this? What was the objective? The ultimate objective was that he might bring us, that he might bring you to God. The Greek word translated bring is the same as the word that's used for access, to be granted access. Romans 5, through him we have obtained access into this grace. Ephesians 2, through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. Ephesians 3, in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So access, it's a means of entering or approaching. So let's say you want to meet someone who is powerful and famous. I don't know who that might be for you. You, you, you would just love to meet somebody who is several rungs higher on the social calendar than you are, and it's just not going to happen unless you know someone who knows them who has power and authority and the ability to influence in order to make arrangements to set up a time for you to have lunch with this person. I would love to have lunch with who? Fill in the blank, but you need to know somebody who can make that happen. 
But friends, we're not talking about making arrangements for you to have lunch with Tom Hanks or Jennifer Lawrence or the President of the United States. We're talking about someone making arrangements for you to have lunch with God, for you to spend the day with God, for you to spend eternity with God. Someone who could do that, someone who had the power and the influence and who would be willing to do it to take care of all the arrangements where he says, you know what, I know the Father, I know the Father really well, and I am willing to do whatever it takes to make it possible to bring you to God. That's what Peter says here, that he might bring us to God. And then it gives you pause, because you stop and you think for a minute, wait a minute, he is bringing me to the holy God of the universe, the sovereign of the universe, He is bringing me to the God whom I have spurned, whom I have disregarded, whom I have disobeyed, whom I have treated with contempt. He is bringing me to the God whose laws I have violated, whose name I have abused, whose glory I have robbed. Christ is willing to do whatever it takes to bring me to this God. See, friends, because of what Christ did, we are restored to God. We're restored to God. I love these stories that you'll see from time to time where people get restored and reunited to each other. You know, men and women in the military, they've been gone for a long time, and they show up at their son's or daughter's basketball game, and they bring them out to the center of the court, and they're reunited We love those stories. We love stories of people being restored to each other, reunited with with each other. Jesus restored us to God. And so all the mess and the wreckage that we've brought into our lives through sinful choices and foolish decisions is canceled because of what Jesus did. So that's all the first... The first thing that he stresses there is the sufferings of Christ. Sufficient, substitutionary, specific. Then number two, the second thing that he wants us to think about, I believe, is what I'm referring to as the slow to anger patience of God. And this is where we get into this obscure part of the passage. Peter writes about Christ being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, verse 19, in which he, Jesus, went someplace and proclaimed something to the spirits, either of people who were deceased or invisible principalities and powers, demonic spirits, in in prison, imprisoned spirits, because they formerly, previous time, did not obey did not obey God, so they were imprisoned because of their disobedience. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Wow. Now, you'll be interested to know that Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther, extremely brilliant Martin Luther, devoted student of scriptures, one of the primary movers and shakers in the Reformation, said of these verses, quote, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, 
so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. And you all expect me to explain this? That's just great. But there have been many who have tried. But I would just say at the front end, if Martin Luther came to that conclusion, I think we would be wise not to feel compelled to arrive at a definitive understanding of exactly what Peter meant, because it's just probably not going to happen, okay? And you have to be okay with that. You see, the questions come down to these. Where did Christ go? When did he go? To whom did he speak? And what did he say? And there's a myriad of options to those four questions. In fact, someone has actually calculated all the various, all the various answers to those four questions and calculated that in theory there are 180 different interpretive combinations. Now the major interpretations I'll give you in a nutshell, and that's all. It's all we have time for, and it's all really that I would really feel sufficiently able to do in this kind of a setting. Major interpretations. Number one, Peter's talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, before he became a man, before he took on flesh and dwelt among us, the pre-incarnate Christ in the Spirit preached through Noah to Noah's contemporaries, the people of Noah's day, calling them to repentance. And so the idea there is that when Noah was building the ark, Christ in spirit was preaching through Noah to the hostile unbelievers all around him. Now, Augustine, that was his view. And those of you who have a systematic theology, that is Wayne Grudem's view. The second, the second interpretation, that in the short interval of time between Christ's death and his resurrection... Christ went into Hades, the realm of the dead, and proclaimed his victory to the spirits of the deceased people of Noah's generation who had refused to repent when Noah preached to them of the impending judgment. That view is held by John Calvin. Then the third view, kind of the same time frame, there are variations on each of these, but generally between his death and resurrection... Christ went and proclaimed his victory to the fallen angels, the demons who were responsible for influencing the tremendous wickedness in Noah's day that led God to wipe out humanity with the flood, the spirits that were imprisoned awaiting the final judgment. That's the view of John MacArthur and others. John MacArthur says, of the demons that were incarcerated in the abyss are undoubtedly the most wicked, vile, perverted of all the fallen angels And he references Jude verses 6 and 7 in support of his argument. So those are the three main views, and there are variations of each of those. For what it's worth, I don't feel compelled to cast my vote for any one of those over the others. Um, I mean, if these great Bible scholars can't agree, and if Martin Luther was okay leaving it unresolved, then so am I. I mean, while we believe that all of Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, we also acknowledge that some Scriptures are really, really, really hard to understand because we don't know exactly how they were received by the original audience. 
My guess is that when Peter wrote this letter, his original audience had a better idea of what he was getting at than maybe we do today. I'm not sure. Well, then you say, well, then, Pastor Gary, if we're unable to determine exactly where, when, how, and what it was that Christ proclaimed, then what's our takeaway from a difficult passage such as this? Here's what it is for me. I believe the bottom line is that the crucified Christ, who had humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, had earned the right to proclaim his triumph to whomever he wanted to, whether it was to those in Noah's day who had refused to repent and were deceased, waiting for the final judgment, or whether it was to the demons who had brought tremendous wickedness into the world before the flood, perhaps a level of wickedness the likes of which the world has never known since. And so in the midst of what we don't know, don't ever miss what we do know. We, don't, we know all of that about Christ. That the triumphant Christ had conquered sin, death, and Satan himself, and rightfully proclaimed his victory to those whom he had vanquished. Praise God for that. But there's something else here that I want you to see that I believe is more important than for you to know exactly who Christ preached to and when. I really think that's of very secondary importance. What I think you need to see here is at the end of verse 20, where Peter tacked on the phrase, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. You say, well, Pastor Gary, how long did it take for Noah and his three sons to build that ark? You know, I really want, it's on my bucket list, I want to go to Kentucky and see the ark encounter where they have... They have built, according to biblical specifications, they've built the ark, an ark, replica. Pretty amazing. Um, And the size of the ark, I think we have a picture of the one that they've actually built that we can put up on the screen. Uh, That's just a part of of what they have constructed. Um, I mean, in cubits, it was 300 long by 50 wide by 30 high, translated to feet, and a cubit was basically the end of your finger to the end of your elbow. So if you have really long arms, if you're one of these you know, guys who has arms that hang down to your probably longer, basically 18 to 20 inches in that range is a cubit. It converts to 450 to 500 feet long, 75 to 85 feet wide, 45 to 50, 50 feet high. The dimensions, by the way, the proportions, by the way, of, of great battleships that we, that float the oceans today. How long did it take to build that thing? Well, the builders of the Ark Encounter believe it would have taken Noah and his sons anywhere from 55 to 75 years. 55 to 75 years to build the Ark. Remember, they couldn't order the wood from Home Depot. They had to cut down the trees. They had to figure out ways to haul the tree, haul the lumber, turn them into lumber, no power tools, We're talking about a phenomenal span of time, decades, decades. And here's what I want you to catch. All the while, God's patience waited in the midst of all the wickedness of Noah's day. See, I think that's the most important part of that verse. Judgment was coming, friends. 
It was on the calendar. Judgment was on the calendar. But it was not quick to come. Don't you sometimes find yourself wishing that God's judgment on evil would come more quickly? Have you ever wished that? Oh, that he would just judge, fill in the blank. I think sometimes we can identify with the sentiments of King David when he said in Psalm 139, if, if only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O God? I abhor those who rise up against you. Have you ever felt that way about wickedness? Wickedness abounds and wicked people seem to succeed. And there may be a rightful place for the feelings of King David for us, but only if those sentiments are tempered by an awareness of the slow-to-anger patience of God himself. God, why are you so slow to bring judgment on wicked people? And he replies, Are you not glad that I was slow with you? Are you not glad that I was... How long did I wait for you? He waited 18 years for me. 18 years. For some people, he waits 80 years. See, friends, God's slow to anger patience reveals a level of compassion and love that you and I just really don't understand. You remember how God revealed himself to Moses? Exodus 34 says, The Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's God. That's the God of Noah's day. That's the God of our day. Peter writes in his second epistle, The Lord is not slow, to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Oh my goodness, friends, every week I'm thankful for God's patience with me. You are so patient with me, God. He is slow to anger with me, And I'm so thankful that he continues to exercise his lingering patience with those whom I love and care about who have yet to trust in Christ. You see, what you need to understand is the patience that God practiced in Noah's day is the same patience he practices today. Judgment is on the calendar. And yet he waits And I believe that it should motivate those of us who know him to pray all the more fervently and to grab opportunities whenever they they appear, make themselves known to us, to proclaim the gospel, give testimony of God's abounding love and faithfulness. And it should also motivate us to abound in slow to anger patience with others the way God is slow to anger with us. Now, let me say this. On the other hand, if you are resting on God's patience in not repenting of your sins, 
If you're resting on God's patience in not trusting in Christ, I would tell you that you should not rest a minute longer because you have no guarantees on what tomorrow may bring. None. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is not meant to leave us where we're at. Do not delay in trusting in Jesus. We've got to keep moving here. Because we're not done with the challenges. Number three, the symbolism of baptism in our salvation seems to be what Peter is getting at in these next verses. His reference to Noah, he makes that reference to Noah. Then Peter seems to shift to make a, a, a comment about baptism. And again, it's, it's, it appears to be confusing. He says, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is an example of where if you take one verse out of context, you can really get yourself in trouble. Um, some have interpreted what Peter says just from this verse to infer that baptism is what saves you or that you need to be baptized to be saved. But we know from the rest of Scripture that's not the case. That can't be what Peter means here in this verse. We know that if that were the case, then Jesus would have never uttered those words to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, if somehow you can get down from your cross and get baptized. No, that's not what he said. Or beyond that, the Bible says, by grace you've been saved through faith. Acts 16, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Romans 10, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I could go on and on and on. So this one remote verse in 1 Peter 3 just can't simply be interpreted that way. Say, well, then what does it mean? He says, baptism, which corresponds to this. Corresponds to what? To me, it seems to be, correspond to being brought safely through the floodwaters. And then he clarifies, it now saves you, not as a removal of dirt. Baptism doesn't wash you clean of your sins. We know that it is only by the blood of Jesus that a person is cleansed of their sins. Not as a removal of your sins, but as an appeal to God, he says, for a good conscience. What does that mean? I think it means when you confess your faith in Jesus and you profess your faith through the waters of baptism, you are, in effect, appealing to God to cleanse your conscience, to give you a new and brand new conscience, a good conscience, one that is free from accusation, one that is free from condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You could say that baptism for the believer is a major Ah, moment. It's one of those times when you just, just a, a flood of relief comes over you when you realize that by God's grace through faith, I am now safe in Christ from the floodwaters of judgment. Thank you that just as you closed Noah and his family into the ark, so you have made me secure in Jesus. And now, as a result, my conscience is good. 
My conscience is not attacked by accusations from the enemy, from the flesh, from the world. I am free from condemnation. That's what I think Peter was trying to say. And if he would have just asked me, I could have said it so much better than him. No. I'm being facetious. Now we're ready for the second book bookend. You got this, the, all the challenging stuff in the middle. On, on both ends is Christ. The second bookend is the supreme honor that is given to Christ. Verse 22, talking of Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So the right hand of God, that's the preeminent place of authority and power and honor. The right hand. The right hand of a king, that's, that was the place of honor. The right hand of God in heaven, that's the place of honor and authority where he rules from today. Angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. What's been one of the themes of First Peter? Being in subjection, right? Slaves, be subject for the Lord's sake. Be subject to your masters. Everyone be subject to every human institution. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Verse chapter 5, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now here with Christ, it's reversed. He who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. And so supreme honor is given to Jesus. The author of Hebrews referred to Christ's position of supremacy when he wrote, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And as a result, God has bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, don't let the stuff that we don't know trump the stuff that we do. Praise God for what he has shown us in the scriptures. <clears throat> all that Christ has done for us and all the glory that is his, both now and forevermore. So, did I crash? Am I still on my skis? You know, friends, this is one of the reasons why I just hope you really study the Scriptures for yourself. Don't be afraid to study the Bible for yourself. Don't, don't assume that you need me or Will to explain everything for you. Study the Scriptures yourself. Read the Bible. Find yourself in it. Get, get Bible dictionaries and commentaries and atlases and, and dive in. Otherwise, you're just always swimming. You're always splashing around in the water right next to shore. You're always sort of getting your feet wet and saying, oh, it's kind of cold. I don't want to go in there. No, dive in. Go out deep. Go out deep. That's where you'll discover the greatest treasures in God's Word, where, where you're willing to go deep and trust God. God, I trust you. That was one of the marks of Billy Graham's ministry where he got to a point in his life where he said, Lord, there is much in this book that I do not understand. But he got down on his knees and he said, but today I accept all of it as your word. I accept all of it. And he looks back on that day as the day when God blessed his ministry. 
and poured out his spirit upon him. And I would simply say the same to you. Take, take the Bible in your hand and say, Lord, there are things in here I do not understand, but I'm not going to be a sluggard with this book. I'm going to be a student of the scriptures. I am going to search the scriptures to find out if what Gary taught us this morning is true. Okay? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us in so many ways. Thank you, Father, for your Son, the Lord Jesus. His sacrifice was enough. It was sufficient. Lord Jesus, you took our place. You are our substitute. And we thank you that the, the end goal was that you might bring us to God. Apart from you, Lord Jesus, we have no access. We have no access to the throne of grace apart from you. Thank you. And now today we honor you as sitting at the right hand, the right hand of the Father in heaven, awaiting that day when you will come again. Not to die, but triumphant. You will come in all your glory with all of your angels. And you will take us to be with you where you are. We praise you for that. We thank you this morning for the bread and the cup which remind us of the great, great sacrifice, our substitutionary Savior, whose death, whose blood atoned for our sins. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name.